It's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week. That's right. We are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week. So we're going to be featuring expert insights, practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals. From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you. There's, there's a wonderful parallel between uh, yoga and acceptance and commitment therapy, um, um, I think. A kind of a, a certain level of uh, acceptance and openness to experience that you have to have in yoga um you know where you move in ways that you know where you kind of find the edge of your ability to move in terms of strength and flexibility not not going beyond it uh, but just moving towards it You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Kelly Wilson. Kelly Wilson is a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Mississippi. He was founding president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and is one of the co-founders of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Dr. Wilson has devoted himself to the development and dissemination of acceptance and commitment therapy, relational frame theory, and their underlying theory and philosophy, publishing 11 books, including Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, The Process and Practice of Mindful Change, and The Wisdom to Know the Difference, an Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Workbook for Overcoming Substance Abuse, as well as over 100 articles and chapters on related basic and applied topics. In today's interview, Dr. Wilson will talk you through self-care. You know, he shares about his first yoga class and really highlights the idea of how we need to go gently with ourselves, kindly with ourselves. He then links in a wonderful parallel of yoga and act and introduces you to the concept of first medicine. This idea that your lifestyle, the things you do matters for your health and your well-being, but frames it in terms of evolutionary science and how we evolve for a very different lifestyle, a very different context than what we're living today. And sometimes it really feels like an uphill battle to be maintaining our health and our wellness in a society where things are not always easy. So 
This is the first of two episodes with Dr. Wilson. He was so generous with his sharing that we've decided to give it to you in two digestible chunks. So please have a listen now. I'll touch base with you at the end of the episode and then please stay tuned for part two. But without further ado, here's Dr. Wilson now. Welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. I am delighted to be with you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and the space for us. I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be with you. And um, uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to find somebody who actually wants to have me talk about the stuff that I'm wildly interested in. <laughs> Myself and my listeners are incredibly keen. So I'm really keen just to maybe start off with giving a little bit of context to who you are and how you came to this place of lifestyle medicine. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of an odd, uh, 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 it's, a, it's an odd uh, amble um, because I'm not, you know, I wasn't trained as a health psychologist. Um, and wasn't trained in medicine. Um, uh, you know, what I, I have spent a career doing is, um, well, probably this, the centerpiece of it um, uh, would be um, the work I've done in the development of acceptance and commitment therapy. And, you know, the therapy uh, uh, contains uh, different elements. Um, and you can think of it sliced in different ways, but one way to think about it is that the therapy um, teaches people to practice um, showing up and, and being present in their lives, um, uh, to open up uh, to things that, that are difficult, and to open up to things that are difficult in the service of uh, things um, that matter, you know, things that are of value to them. And I, um, for many years, I uh, uh, taught um, the values portion uh, of this work, which has always been kind of the center of the work for me, um, in this way that sort of said, you know, you could choose any of these values that you want uh, to work on, you know, that would make it worth showing up in your life, that would make it worth bearing pain in your life. Um, and so, you know, if it's um, being a parent or being a sister or um, um, professionals. And, you know, one of these kind of little uh, um, uh, domains was always self-care. And, you know, I used to have this joke I would tell uh, at workshops and I would say, um, you know, if there's some of these uh, domains, valued domains that you don't care about, that's fine. Um, like, for example, self-care, I would say, I'm with H.L. Mencken, you know, wherever I get the urge to um, strong physical exercise, I lie down until it passes. And, <laughs> you know, and the people in the, you know, room would laugh a little bit and I'd laugh a little bit. And um, I was doing this workshop, uh, uh, it's been a decade ago, um, and a, a little more than that. And, you know, I you know, had my little joke and everything. And then I was leading this values exercise. And in this exercise, I asked people to uh, imagine uh, the face of uh, someone who they loved. You know, to just 
picture, you know, uh, uh, someone in your life who you're just um, crazy about. You know? And when I lead these exercises, I always participate in them as I lead them. And so, you know, I kind of think about, okay, who do I love, you know? And um, I'm, I'm thinking of my kids and um, in this exercise. And, uh, and then I ask people this question, like, can you think of a time when, you, you know, maybe they caught you looking at them uh, where they could see in your eyes how much you love them? Just kind of let it sink in a little bit. Like, did they ever, you know, catch you looking at them like that? And then I ask people, um, what if you were someone you loved that much? And then what would you offer yourself? And then my joke was suddenly not funny anymore. You know, my, and, and I sat there, I was in the north of Sweden, uh, you know, in this incredible, beautiful forest um, at this kind of set of cabins on the side of this lake. And it was just still, you know. And I sat there and I wondered, when did it become okay for me uh, to neglect me? And even more, when did it become okay for me to joke about neglecting me? Because I would never do that about someone I loved, never. Uh, I wouldn't tolerate it. Not for one second would I, would I stand for it. Um, and and, and uh, that, that's, um, that kind of moment on the edge of that lake in uh, Sweden um, um, sort of overturned me and, and really um, um, pushed my whole trajectory in a, a different direction. Um, in the immediate consequence, um, I, I was like a, like a super sedentary person. And, uh, um, I mean, I could sit like nobody's business, you know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I, but I, and I didn't really, and I would tell you, I hated exercise, you know, but, uh, I, but then, you know, I thought I knew this, other people had worried about me and, uh, a friend of mine in, uh, Sweden had, uh, told me about this yoga center where I lived that was uh, really, really good and about this yoga teacher that was really, really good. He visited there. And, um, and so uh, when I got home from that uh, trip to Europe uh, in 2009, I uh, went down to that yoga center and uh, got myself signed up for a year. And, you know, uh, one thing led to another, you know. That's an incredibly uh, powerful journey. Like, what a turning moment. Well, it, it was that moment when I started to think, well, what if I cared for myself just in the same way I would care for someone I loved? Uh, and because I'm like a super science nerd, I started like reading the science of, well, how do you take care of a human being anyway? What kind of a critter are we? What do we need? You know? <laughs> And uh, so it started with the exercise, but then it just, you know, it, it, it took off and it took off with a, the kind of passion that you would devote to, um, you know, someone you loved, you know, it was, it, it, 
in retrospect, it's amazing to me that I couldn't see that. You know, I mean, you get in my trajectory, I'd been like training people in act for years and years and years and training people to be kind and compassionate and caring. And, you know, here I was making jokes about my own neglect. I mean, I, it's, it's remarkable um, how we can uh, lose touch with such simple I imagine listeners might also connect with that experience and that journey in, the, in their own way, because when you were describing looking at someone that you love so much and how, how that feels and then turning this gaze back on yourself, I was feeling a little bit confronted with that too. So I'm, I'm very interested in you sharing all of the steps that that you've linked and you've connected in regards to how we do take care of ourselves in the way that we would someone we're devoted to that we care about so deeply. Your yoga journey though, just to contextualize it, if someone hasn't exercised um, and they're thinking, oh, yoga, you know, I've, I've seen some pictures of that. It looks pretty wild. Would you mind just normalizing that journey yeah, for, for listeners, please? Uh, actually, uh, for the people who uh, do know about yoga, uh, they'll, they'll get a laugh out of my first yoga class. So I saw this teacher's name. So I, I, you know, I went into the very first class that, you know, was on the schedule when I got home. And uh, I got there a little bit early so that I could get all signed up and everything. And uh, it was an Ashtanga yoga class, you know. And so I asked her, I said, you know, would an Ashtanga yoga class um, you know, be a, a good place to start, you know, for this 55 year old, uh, you know, super sedentary guy. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, listeners are familiar with yoga, they will know that Ashtanga yoga is a particularly vigorous uh, practice that was like designed for adolescent boys, I think. And, uh, uh, but she was so uh, um, uh, a wonderful. And uh, she said, you know, it'll be just fine, uh, but you should know that there's an adaptation of uh, every one of the poses that we're going to do in there today. And so if you feel like your legs are getting tired or that something's difficult, I want you to feel free to drop into this pose. And uh, she showed it to me, it's a child's pose. And so this pose, you're, you're kneeling and you kind of uh, collapse with your chest down over your knees and uh, your head to the floor in the same way that a child, you know, might come to rest. And uh, she said, this is a modification of all the different poses that we're going to do here. So if people aren't familiar with yoga and they think of all these kind of twisty, vigorous, you know, uh, uh, flexible poses, um, let me just tell you that in that 90-minute class, I spent, you know, about... Uh, uh, 86 minutes in child's pose. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, perfect. <laughs> but you know, but you know, the thing is, uh, and, but it, it was, it was really, it was wonderful. Um, and I, you know, I didn't come back to that Ashanga class for quite a few months, but I started going to classes that were um, gentle yoga for special needs, you know? So, I mean, I was going to uh, these restorative yoga classes and these super gentle yoga classes. And it, it, 
you know, it, one of the, this, the, the things that I think people really should understand is that, and I think this is true of any sort of, um, you know, taking on any kind of movement practice at all, uh, is, you know, go gently. I mean, no one in the world ever started a movement practice and said, you know, I wish I wouldn't have gone into that so gently. <laughs> you know, people take up running, they take up yoga, and they try to like push themselves. You know, there's no competitive yoga, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, even not like, it's not like how it looks on the yoga journal. It's not how it looks on the mat next to you. It's not even how you looked on the mat yesterday. It's like you today, you know, in this body, in this moment. Um, and you really can't go too gently. Um, and and I was fortunate to have teachers um, that were so, um, they understood where I was and they really encouraged me uh, to go slow, to go gently, uh, to modify um, uh, in ways that suited me. And uh, man, I came back. Uh, I mean, it was like learning my own body. Um, I, yeah. I, at the time, I thought it was like learning my body for the first time, but really it was relearning my body because a child, as a child, I knew my body. But in the busyness of life, I'd forgotten it. So it was a reconnection. Interesting how you called it a movement practice and that it was something that was practice, that it was movement, it was a way of learning your body. And I, I guess I wonder with that, because you actually went on to become a yoga teacher. So I wonder how that that blends with the work you do with ACT as well, because I, I guess this is all linked together, isn't it? Well, you know, for me, everything connects to everything. So um, I wouldn't call myself a yoga teacher. I did complete a yoga teacher training, but it was really... Um, and I had some ideas about actually teaching yoga, but I, I guess by the time I finished the training, I kind of thought, you know, I do, I spend most of my time and certainly most of my career, both inside the university and outside in, out in the world teaching. And yoga was like this one place where I wasn't the teacher, you know, and it was kind of nice. So I never actually um, uh, taught yoga, but uh, many there, there's a wonderful parallel between uh, yoga and acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, um, I, I think um, that there's um, a kind of a, a certain level of uh, acceptance and openness to experience that you have to have in yoga. Um, you know where you move in ways that. Um, you know, where you kind of find the edge of your ability to move in terms of strength and flexibility, not, not going beyond it, uh, but just moving towards it. Um, in fact, a, a really uh, quite famous Ashtanga yoga teacher, David Swenson, who's marvelous, um, uh, uh, tells people uh, to go 85%, he said, because that way, if you get a yoga teacher who's like a little too enthusiastic and they kind of adjust you to go a little further, you'll have that extra 15% in there still. So it's <laughs> uh, a good strategy. I like it. You know, I, I, you know, my, my, my thought when I was there 
is um, one way to think about yoga is a 360 degree mindfulness practice. And so there was that practice of being present in there. There was that practice of opening up uh, to discomfort. Um, and it, it was very clear for me right from the beginning that what that yoga practice was about was about love. It was about kindness. And so there was a value being served. So it wasn't discomfort for its own sake. Um, it was a willingness to experience a certain amount of discomfort uh, in the service um, of, of um, kindness. That's a beautiful lens and a beautiful way of experiencing that sensationality that it wasn't that you were pushing to 100% or going to a point of like physical pain. It was about experiencing your edge, getting to know your body and working in a way that was loving and kind and compassionate. And you talked about, Kelly, how when you were little, you, you knew your body, that this was this relearning of your body. What was it like when you were little? Because I, I gather that in some ways it's, it's connecting back in with that little Kelly who, who you would want to love and cherish and, and treat well. Isn't that something? It wasn't, it was, that was, it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting that you say that because that's very much was my experience. Although um, I don't know as I started it that I, planned it that way. I didn't really think about that. It was in the movement itself that, you know, at the time, if you would have asked me, um, say, um, two years into that practice, um, I would have told you that I was learning my body for the first time. Um, about five years into that movement practice, I uh, began running which I, I mean, I used to have this whole rant about how much I hated running and how I thought people who ran were like insane, you know, and I <laughs> see them on the sides of the road and they look like, you know, like some kind of, it looks like some kind of torture, you know, and everything. But about five years ago, I started running and, um, you know, I'm a creature of extremes, I suppose. Um, my mother always said I ran hot and I ran cold. Uh, so anyway, I, um, um, I started running and um, I, I kind of fooled around a little bit with running on roads. And, and, you know, I was able to run a bit and to actually run enough to feel the sort of exhilaration that a runner uh, feels, you know. And I remember the first time I've experienced it, it was sort of like, oh, my God, I've discovered runner's high. You know, now, now I recognize that I was, you know, that other people had discovered it first, but still, you know, it was pretty exciting for me. I was like 60 years old and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this must be what those people were talking about, you know? And I wondered, you know, like, well, why was it? And, and I think that the reason that I was able to discover the kind of joy of running was because that five years of yoga had attuned me to my own body enough that when I began to run, I was very, um, I, I was strong. You know, I'd practiced yoga, you know, probably six days a week um, for the five years before that, you know, and generally a pretty vigorous flow. And so when I started running, I already had a body that I was very in touch with um, and that, that was, um, that was uh, fit and strong. Very quickly, I switched to uh, trail running because the roads just seemed boring. 
And then uh, I had a couple of small injuries. And of course, being a science nerd, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on about running and biomechanics and innervation and all of this, you know, I mean, I'm a nerd. I just can't help it. That's amazing, the science of running. I like it. Oh, my goodness. You can't believe all of the interesting stuff out there. So one of the things that I came across um, was a guy named uh, Lieberman who studies um, barefoot running. Uh, uh, He's at Harvard. And uh, I discovered a host of uh, books and um, 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 scientific studies that were examining people who um, ran unshod. And by that, I don't mean minimal shoes. I mean, with no shoes at all. Um, uh, and of course, there are, you know, um, uh, um, hunter-gatherers still on the planet who, you know, continue to live their whole lives without ever putting a shoe on their feet. And uh, so I started experimenting around with that. And again, just going incredibly slow and, um, really feeling my way along. I like, I ran like a little kid runs, you know, uh, I didn't worry about pace. I didn't worry about distance. I'd run a little bit until I'd get kind of winded. Remember when you're a kid and you'd run, you know, and you know, you, your side had hurt a little bit and, you know, and then you'd walk for a minute and then, you know, somebody would go running by you and you'd take off again. Well, that's how I started running. Uh, and, and it was out in those woods, barefoot, um, that I remembered this whole childhood that I spent running in the forests of Western Washington. And I thought, I haven't always hated to run. You know, uh, um, I, hate, I learned to hate running when I went to school and they forced us to run. But when I was a kid, I mean, we took our shoes off um, at the end of uh, school when summer started and put them back on, you know, when school started at the end of summer and, you know, spent the whole summer like that. And uh, it's the most natural thing in the world. And uh, so I've, I've been a, a barefoot trail runner and, and that imagery of the child really came to me powerfully. Um, in in the running. So the yoga really prepared me for the trail running and the trail running, it was just so like, oh my God, it was like, like I grew up in a rural place in uh, Western Washington where the nearest forest was pretty much just out the back door. That's incredible. And my brothers and I just ran wild through the woods and, you know, rivers and hills and climbing trees. And, um, so that's what my running practice looks like is it's, it's not like, uh, you know, there's no pace setting. There's no, <laughs> it sounds delightful. And it also sounded to me really mindful, like taking your shoes off as an adult and getting, getting a new handle on the sensations, the experience going really gently and carefully. It sounds like it was this act of mindful movement, similar to what you would have been doing in your yoga practice, you know, learning the mindful movement. I think that's right. And, and, and I don't think that I would, I'm not sure that I would have come to it in that same way had I not had that 
long yoga practice that uh, that uh, preceded it. Yeah, and this is one, I mean, movement really is one of the components of your model of, you know, healthy living, of lifestyle medicine. Would you, would you mind sort of sharing with us the other, you know, science and uh, concepts that you in your self-care discovery link together? Sure. Um, I'd be happy. I've got a little chapter that I, I think I sent you before, and uh, um, we we just won't worry about the publisher too much, and uh, we'll just let people have that uh, sample chapter, and maybe if they like it, they'll go buy the book, so you can make it available to people. That would be fabulous. So listeners, um, head to the show notes, and that's that's so generous, Kelly. People are going to love reading that. It was so inspiring when I read it, so thank well, you. That's so, so generous. Well, let me tell you a little bit about how, it, it, because it, it, the, I started teaching about this. Um, you know, as soon as I started to do it, and, and when I say it, I, you know, I don't just really mean go to yoga, because I wasn't just going to yoga. <clears throat> there was this other piece that was in there, and that was I was caring for myself. And... Um, when I started caring for myself, um, very quickly, I started to think, well, this is nice that I'm treating my body like this, but then I started to look at like what I was eating. And, you know, I was an, a, an extremely careless eater. I just ate whatever I felt like eating as much as I felt like eating whenever I felt like eating it. Um, probably because my wife is sort of a careful shopper and, uh, you know, I inherited the right set of genetics, you know, I didn't, you know, become, you know, really, really large or anything, but, but, you know, my eating was, was uh, terrible and careless. And so, you know, the next piece that fell into place was, you know, how would you feed a human being if you, you know, what, what are their, what is a human's nutritional needs? So then, you know, I'm off reading nutrition science, which is astonishingly complex and confusing and confounded by um, money from food and agriculture industries that are really bent on uh, misleading people. I think that there are some pretty simple steps that people can take. Uh, anybody who says there's a right diet, I think is kidding themselves. I, I think that the empirical evidence makes it pretty clear that um, some people thrive on a variety of different uh, diets that are, uh, you know, vegetarian or, you know, that contain uh, meat protein. Um, one thing that, but, but, and, and so which way to go on that? I think that's a little, please, please yourself and your own values, I would say. Um, but one thing is for sure. Um, and I think one of the reasons that you see a lot of times you'll see equivalence when you compare diets against one another, <clears throat> they don't really look that different. You know, the outcomes look, you know, will tend to look pretty good. High fat diet, low fat diet, like that. <clears throat> I think one of the reasons is none of these diets contain large amounts of highly processed foods. Of course. Of and as soon as you take highly processed foods out of a person's diet, and you, you start eating something that looks like eat real food, not too much, lots of fruits and vegetables. I, I really think uh, that 
you can go a, a huge distance in um, caring for yourself uh, by restricting your eating to food. <laughs> you know, like actual <laughs> that sounds so simple, food. doesn't it? But yet, like food is not something that is as easy to consume as, as it sh- should be, perhaps, or we might think it is. Well, We're surrounded it, by it, it, the, the problem is is the things that get sold as food contain all kinds of ingredients that are either not food at all, you know, they're just, you know, manufactured, you know, colorants, stabilizers, uh, humectants, you know, you ever notice like those cookies that, you know, you can leave them on a shelf for like six months and they're still soft. That's because (laughs) they contain chemicals that are called humectants. And what humectants do is they have an affinity for liquid and they pull liquid out of the atmosphere so that it keeps them moist. I had no Um, idea. (laughs) You're right, exactly. And, you know, I just don't know that you want to eat things that are, you know, uh, or or things that are like things like stabilizers. Um, Well, you know, your digestive system is kind of by definition destabilizes, you know, like you eat something and it's a whole thing and, you know, you begin to destabilize it by chewing it up, you know, and, and, uh, you know, your digestive system is taking it apart, you know, um, stabilization has to do with, you know, food preservation and things like that. So, I mean, I'm not nutty about these things, you know, I mean, being able to preserve food is a good thing. Um, but you know, the, the problem with these really highly processed foods is that they um, often contain things that aren't food and have no nutritional value, some of which have uh, ha- cause harm, mm-hmm. um, and some of which would not be harmful in and of themselves, um, but um, they've never in our evolutionary history been available in such quantity. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, for example, sugar, um, uh, uh, added sugars um, in foods, you know, never in human history have we had access to the quantities of sugar that we have access to uh, uh, right now. So they, they contain things that in our evolutionary history were sort of rare um, and fine uh, as a rare thing. And they contain very little of some of the things that were very common. So they take the fiber out, um, which was extremely common in all the kind of vegetable matter that we ate. They add sugar in, which was extremely uncommon. Um, And our bodies have not evolved at the same extent as, you know, this easy consumption of processed food. You know, our environment has not, I guess, evolved in such a way that it's conducive to how we process food, for instance. Is that right? What's the evolutionary component in this? Yeah, I mean, well, if if you sort of look at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, like access, uh, if you look even like at the United States, if you go from like colonial times uh, to, uh, you know, the current era and, you know, the numbers will be a little wonky because it depends how you make the estimates. But, you know, I've seen estimates that suggest we um, uh, uh, ate as little as a few pounds of sugar per year 
in colonial times and that the average American is exposed to something like 90 pounds of sugar a year, oh uh, 100 pounds of sugar a year uh, in a diet of highly processed foods. And if you go to the store and pick something off the shelf um, and look at the ingredients, like go down the cereal aisle and you know, pick, and not only will it, uh, it won't have sugar as the first ingredient, so the one, but what it'll have is it'll have four or five different sources of sugar in it. And there's a reason, it's a bit of trickery that they're engaging in. Uh, you know, you might wonder why they have cane sugar and, uh, you know, uh, sh uh, sugar from a fruit, a fruit and, uh, uh, you know, high fructose corn syrup and, and four or five different kinds of sugar. Well, the way the labeling thing goes is they have to put the ingredient that there's most of has to be the first ingredient on the label. But if they put in five different kinds of sugar, then each one is a sort of a smaller amount. Uh, and so it gets spread out across the uh, label. If they had it listed as a single ingredient, you know, there are a lot of foods out there where it would be the first ingredient. Oh my um, goodness. You know, nothing in our evolutionary history prepared us um, uh, uh, for that. And really, it isn't about the sugar people put in their own food. You know, for example, when was the last time you had a cup of coffee where you put uh, 20 spoons of sugar in a cup of coffee? I can say. Never. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, who would do that? I mean, no one. But you know who does it every single day? Starbucks. Starbucks. <laughs> For millions of them every single day there, you know, where there's like an equivalent uh, in some of these big kind of frappuccino kinds of things, uh, you know, there might be an equivalent of uh, 20 or so teaspoons of sugar in one of those. There's sugar in the, the natural world, um, like uh, 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 take something like apple juice. People think of that. Oh, that's a very natural food, right? Apple juice, what could be more natural? But in fact, apple juice is not at all natural. It, it requires considerable processing to get that juice out of the apple. Um, and there's something really important and magical about uh, an apple, and that is that it contains so much fiber that it protects you from uh, the overconsumption of sugar. So, for example, and, and, and actually, you know, when I taught this stuff to undergraduates um, and, and I wanted to give them uh, uh, a dietary advice. Uh, and, and so this is a real actionable kind of a thing. Like if you know you're going to go out and eat tonight and you know you're going to eat unhealthy food, then eat an apple before you go. Right? That's so now, simple. Well, think about this. If you had told your mom, your mom was like making dinner or something like that. And you said, and you said, oh, mom, I'm going to have an apple like right before dinner. She'd say, no, don't eat that apple right before dinner because you'll spoil your appetite. <laughs> we'll spoil your appetite. Okay. So this is, you can take advantage of the fact that yes, that apple actually will spoil your appetite. And so if you're going to go out and, you know, you know, hog down on, you know, sausage pizza or something like that, if you eat an apple before you go, you'll still eat pizza, but you won't eat as much. That's incredibly actionable. Everyone can do that, can't we? We can have a little bit of a thing, keep a store of apples on our hand. You know, if you're feeling guilty, you know, like, you know, like you're in the middle of this crazy pandemic and you're thinking, you know, like, I just cannot bring myself to make anything but mac and cheese for dinner. 
you know, give the kids an apple first, you know, spoil their appetite, you know, because an apple, you know, it's a pretty healthy thing to eat. Um, and, you know, I, I've asked people sometimes like, uh, you know, like I was talking about the amount of sugar in a, you know, big Frappuccino, you could get that same amount of sugar in, you know, four or five apples. But when was the last time you ate four or five apples at one time? Never. You know, it would make you sick if you tried to eat that many apples, right? See, the fiber in there protects you from uh, overconsuming uh, the sh sugar. Um, I really so like the idea of it being a practical thing that we've got that like an apple that it's wholly packaged that it comes with the fiber that that makes it you know entirely appropriate for our digestion and for you know giving ourselves food that is whole as you said and that it's a pretty healthy snack why is it so hard for us to reach for the apple when the mac and cheese is is sitting there why why are we drawn to one over the other well this is kind of an evolutionary dirty trick you know <laughs> so for millions of years, as we evolved out on the savannah, um, you know, we lived in a state, I mean, life was hard. And we lived in a very often, I mean, maybe during certain seasons of the year, there was lots and lots and lots to eat. But during significant parts of the year, when we were hunter-gatherers, um, which is most of human history, um, you had to go out there and scrap. You had to go out there and hunt for food. You had to go out there and dig in the ground for uh, food. You had to uh, scavenge food. And it takes a lot of calories um, to get that food um, uh, enough that, you know, human beings lived in, you know, on the edge of calorie debt for a good part of human history. Um, and when calories are scarce and hard to come by, um, it's an evolutionary advantage for you to prefer uh, foods that um, require fewer uh, or, or that are high in calories. Um, and so to have a, a taste, taste buds that sort of say, mmm, fat, good, mmm, sugar, good. I mean, when you're in a world that has too few calories, that affinity for, um, you know, high calorie foods is your friend. You know, the ones that didn't like high calorie foods just wandered around the savannah in, you know, crazy calorie debt. You know, the day came when the debt was too much to pay and they died from it. Uh, uh, same thing with the physical exercise. Um, you know, evolution, because calories were scarce, evolution favored, you know, the ones that took the easy way up the hill. You know, yeah. not the hard way up the hill. So, you know, if, if there's an easier way to get the calories, you know, evolution sort of tipped us towards that. It, it, there's a thing, a principle in uh, the psychology of learning called the matching law, uh, developed by a guy named Hernstein. And the matching law basically says that an, an animal, including a human being, will distribute their behaviors according to the density of reinforcers. So wherever the most reinforcers are, that's where you're gonna to begin to distribute your behavior. So um, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that we'd prefer the most calorie dense foods that are the easiest to get. Now, what I just described is uh, phoning in an order for pizza delivered. 
(laughs) It's high calorie. I I don't even have to get out of my chair, you know, to secure those calories. Um, So the the engineered world, and and don't get me wrong, I I would not go back uh, to that world. Just 200 years ago, we buried half of our children before their fifth birthday. Half. Like global infant mortality. Um, a child mortality um, uh, just even 150 years ago was something like 40, 43 mm, percent. The most recent tragic. data uh, that you can find, like on Our World and Data, global uh, child mortality is uh, about 4 percent right now. 4 percent. That's an order of magnitude uh, in difference. Yeah. Um, uh, maternal mortality has dropped two orders of magnitude in the last 200 years. So that's like from 1,000 to 100 to fewer than 10 uh, uh, in 10,000. I mean, that's... Yeah. So the good old days, they weren't that good. No. Um, but the modern world that has allowed us to preserve food and to stockpile food, which has many, many benefits, you know, we, we have to recognize that it is a risk factor for our health that abundance so the abundance yeah because we are trying to conserve our calories so you know the ringing up getting the pizza kind of takes care of the pizza delivery as well as providing us something that you know is scrumptious in the sense of dense calories those of us who well, I mean, all of us right now, let's face it, COVID is is global. I imagine that calling and ordering a pizza is something that, you know, a few people have been doing here and there. The other thing that's going on is social disconnect. And I know that that social activity and social connection really functions into your first medicine approach. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? And maybe then we can come back to explaining some strategies to help get us through this. Sure, sure. Um, You know, if I had to uh, um, um, make a guess at how I survived my extraordinary self-neglect, um, I would guess that the way that I survived is that I have been persistently embedded, um, uh, you know, for the last 35 years um, in a, a wonderful, loving uh, community. And I've done work that is really a, a labor of love. I mean, um, I make no bones about it when I do psychotherapy when I teach psychotherapy that I love my clients. I love them. Yeah. And, um, and that work is an expression of my love. And when I teach therapists uh, and I teach students, I love my students also. And uh, the teaching of that work um, uh, is, is, is an, an, an interaction of, of that love. It turns out that Social connection, you know, is uh, as important to us as uh, uh, food and water. Um, it, it is um, a good uh, social connection um, is, will buffer almost any other risk factor that you have. Um, there is, uh, on the other side of that, 
uh, social toxins that will put you at heightened risk um, for every other risk factor um, uh, that is out there uh, in the world, including uh, things like viral immunity. Um, there's a whole area of work that's called social genomics. Um, and it's pretty readily understood from an evolutionary perspective. So for those millions of years of evolution, we lived in small um, social groups of um, you know, perhaps uh, 50 or, or so. Um, and um, we, you know, this was a world where you knew and interacted with everyone in the world that you knew every single day of your life. Um, you know, right now uh, you have um, um, uh, places like um, uh, Stockholm, something like 50% of households are single person households in Stockholm. Oh, wow. If, if you look um, in, across the U.S., it's um, between 20 and 30 percent, depending on what region. Um, I'm not sure what the numbers in Australia, but I would suspect they're similar yeah. uh, uh, to U.S. numbers. Never in human history have so many people uh, uh, lived alone. Um, Harry Harlow, the uh, experimental psych uh, psychologist, um, had a saying that a lone monkey is a dead monkey. And so if people have ever taken an introduction to psychology course, they will remember an image that is in probably every intro psychology text ever written. And um, the pictures are of these little capuchin monkeys. And instead of being raised by their mothers, um, they created these little wire frames that had a feeding tube on it so that the monkey could feed on it. And some of them, the images have kind of a little stuffed mama monkey with, you know, a feeding tube where the monkey could feed. And some just had like a sort of a wire frame one. Um, you know, some of them had like this kind of stuffed um, monkey with like little eyes and like that. And these infant monkeys that, um, you know, were placed, at, you know, where they had enough food and they had everything they need but they had this kind of wireframe mommy um, became incredibly neurotic. Um, and the, the images are, are heart wrenching. Um, you know, these little monkeys um, have these kind of repetitive rocking behaviors that they'll engage in. They'll, they'll, you know, bite on their own hands and, uh, um, you know, like sort of self injure. All attempts um, to like regulate their emotional disconnect and distress. And this is just from social isolation, mm. just from that, that disconnect of that nurturance. Now people have seen those pictures, but the pictures that they haven't seen very often. And I think these ones are really important and really interesting is if you took those little monkeys that were raised like that, that end up very neurotic and they're very under socialized. If you put them in a colony um, with, um, other, you know, a colony of monkeys that are, you know, different ages and, and like that, they can detect that that little monkey is uh, impaired in that way, and they'll actually uh, be aggressive towards it uh, and, and uh, will injure uh, or even kill it if they have a chance. But, and this is important, um, if they took, they found that if they took a juvenile monkey, like a, a, another baby monkey 
out of the colony and put it in there with this neurotic monkey. The little baby monkey kind of looks around because it's a social mammal. It wants to be, you know, with others of its own kind. And so the only other monkey in there is this kind of neurotic monkey. And so they'll go over and they'll kind of put their little hand on the other monkey. And the kind of neurotic monkey will try to push them away, will try to get away from them. But that little baby monkey, see, it doesn't know anything about hierarchy yet or anything like that. And so it'll continue to, to try to be next and it'll stand next to him and nudge up and touch him a little bit and like that. And it'll just persist. And eventually, neurotic monkeys would begin to interact with that baby monkey. Um, and over a period of weeks, it would uh, rehabilitate them. And pretty soon you'd see them in there interacting and playing with these uh, juvenile monkeys. They didn't have any training in psychotherapy or anything uh, <laughs> they were able to rehabilitate. There's a really important lesson in those uh, studies, and, and it is that we are that kind also. All the way down to the molecular level, your genetics are regulated um, by your social environment. Good social environments uh, upregulate parts of your genome and downregulate other parts of your genome. Exposure to social toxins. That would include social isolation. Uh, that would include social hostility. Those things um, turn on uh, genes that code for these kind of pro-inflammatory processes. So uh, things like inflammation that you'd get from an injury, uh, that you'd get from being uh, poisoned, like a toxin, that you'd get from an infection, you'd get in these inflammatory responses. Um, you can also get uh, from uh, hostile social interactions. So it actually changes uh, uh, your immune system and upregulates all this inflammation. I said that social exchange was protective uh, 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 for immunity. It upregulates those inflammatory process, but it actually downregulates another part of your immune system. So you sort of have two immune systems. You could think of it this way. You have your innate immune function, and that's these kind of um, in immune functions that don't have to be learned. So, you know, if I, if you get, you know, whacked with a stick or something like that, you don't have to learn to have inflammation around the site of the injury. It will just happen automatically, uh, you know, from birth, you have that uh, capacity. Um, but there's another part of your immune uh, system, which is your adaptive immune system. And your adaptive immune system is that part of your immune system that gets exposed to viruses and things like that. And then it learns how to build antibodies to fight those um, uh, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, infections off. That part of your immune system, under the threat of social hostility, is actually downregulated. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense because. When you're under attack, the threat is not that you're going to catch a cold. The threat is that you're going to get disemboweled, you know, eaten, killed, right? That's so, the evolutionary element again. Exactly. This is why Harlow said a lone monkey is a dead monkey. If a monkey finds himself out there alone, it turns up all of this kind of fight or flight, all of those kind of stress hormones are all upregulated. 
Now, if it just happens momentarily, they're upregulated momentarily, then you go back in a safe environment and they downregulate. But if you're chronically exposed to those social toxins, it will upregulate those um, uh, genes that are coding for uh, that sort of response so that they get upregulated and, and will retain some of that upregulation. This produces chronic illness. That, that chronic upregulation. Momentary insult, a human being can take a hit. I mean, we can, we can take a whack, a, a, a terrible meal, doesn't hurt. We can poison ourselves. And in fact, we do it frequently. Um, I'm not recommending that, of course. <laughs> you know, intoxication, like you gotta get that the root word in intoxication is toxic, right? So we expose ourselves to toxins and, you know, individual exposures to toxins, including social toxins, we're pretty able to come back off of those. Chronic exposure uh, uh, to toxins um, uh, produce um, a chronic illness. That's a good way of remembering it. Chronic illness from chronic exposure to toxins, both physical and social. Yes, absolutely. Well, there you have it. Part one of such a fantastic interview with Dr. Kelly Wilson on the concept of first medicine, of lifestyle medicine. And as Kelly has so generously offered to you a wonderful chapter summarizing first medicine and evolutionary psychology in the acceptance and commitment framework, please just head to drcaitlin.com to be able to download that book chapter. Also, if you've connected with Dr. Wilson, please, please check out his books. If you've ever experienced any sort of anxiety or overwhelm, which I know I certainly have, his book, Things Might Go Terribly, Horribly Wrong, is a brilliant resource, as well as his book, The Wisdom to Know the Difference, which explores addiction, something that Kelly is very open and transparent about having suffered and experienced in his own lifetime. You might also like to check out his webpage, onelifellc.com. And of course, I will link to all of these references in the show notes. And then I will see you back here next week for part two of Dr. Wilson's Wisdom. All right, bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.